Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of The Negotiation. On today's show, we are delighted to speak with Claire Uri, Chief Commercial Officer at the China Britain Business Council, the premier British organization dedicated to fostering trade and investment between the UK and China. Calling in from the picturesque English town of Horncastle, Claire gives a detailed breakdown of the UK and China's robust trading relationship, which has benefited British businesses and communities across the country. Claire explains the pivotal role of the CBBC in promoting UK-China trade, including providing support to British businesses looking to export to China. As a part of that service offering, Claire was recently in Shanghai to attend CIIE and FHC alongside a large delegation of British businesses. Claire shares her observations from the trade shows, as well as her takeaways from her first visit to Shanghai in four years. Our conversation also touches on the British sector's ripe for growth in China, the factors that explain the success of several British brands in China, and the sentiment of British business and government elites towards China. Enjoy. We've talked about China being so, so huge. There's pretty much scope for most areas with the right approach. I think we've just been looking at some new HM revenue and customs data from the UK government. So things that have been doing pretty well recently, jewellery, cosmetics, clothing. I think footwear grew 18% in the four quarters before um, Q2 this year. Food products, beverages. And I think I think we just see there's room for growth in every category. We had a we had a company in Yorkshire not so long ago. We were talking to they were selling dupe boxes. You know the traditional dupe boxes that you see in diners. So who who knew which, which sectors is that sitting? So you know it's those kind of little stories that that counterbalance the, the big stories that that make the news. Home to over 4 billion people, the Asia-Pacific region boasts one of the most powerful consumer markets on the planet. Not only is it home to half of the world's under 30 population, but it's also home to more than half the world's internet users. It's a market that no globally-minded organization should ignore. But entering markets like China, Japan, or Southeast Asia is no easy task. Just ask the likes of Microsoft, Google, Uber, and Facebook. However, times are changing, and with the right partners, doors are slowly opening as more and more companies find success growing their key markets in APAC. I myself spent eight years in China, mostly as a venture capitalist, helping early-stage tech companies grow in the Asia-Pacific market successfully. This show is dedicated to uncovering and examining successful Asia market entry and growth strategies by interviewing the experts who've done it before and truly understand what it takes to be successful in the region. My name is Todd Embley, and welcome to The Negotiation. Brought to you by WPIC Marketing and Technologies. Claire, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Great to be with you, Todd. So, Claire, where are you that we're recording you from today? Well, I'm in a small place called Horncastle in the county of Lincolnshire in in the UK, in England. So, Horncastle. Horncastle. Yeah. Horncastle. So it's not like Hong Kong. No, it's not. It's Horncastle. (laughs) And um, it's like many of the cities that we might touch on. Nobody will have heard of them. <laughs> yes. Okay. Awesome. Okay. Well, let's start by talking about your career working at that that nexus of the China UK trade. Sure. Well, I mean, perhaps first I can say you know I first became involved in all things China when I studied Mandarin at Leeds University in in Yorkshire, and then Fudan University in Shanghai. Uh, that was a long time ago, longer than I care to think about. Um, and I joined uh, China Britain Business Council and its predecessor organization in the mid-1990s when I was responsible for organizing trade delegations of British businesses out to China. Um, and at that time, sort of in the first decade, I really covered a range of sectors from retail, general exports, 
healthcare, um, financial and professional services, which are some of the sectors where we were seeing growth at the time. Um, but then after that, I moved on to cover more specifically agriculture, agri-tech, food and drink. Um, and that's when we really started taking groups out to some of the bigger trade fairs in China, like FHC, which I know we're going to touch on a little bit later. Um, but now my, my current role um, involves leading our team of uh, bilingual advisors and researchers and specialists in delivering a range of services and support to British companies to help them understand the ever-changing growth opportunities and challenges that China presents for them. But across that whole time, so I've been there nearly 30 years. Um, some people groan when I say that, but um, across that time, it's just been really fascinating to, to see firsthand the development of China and how it's evolved since those early days when I was in Shanghai in the mid 80s um, to the city that I saw a couple of weeks ago when I went back. Um, but also to work with, you know, no, many numbers of highly passionate and innovative and companies who've wanted to launch themselves into the market and grow their businesses. It's interesting. I mean, you mentioned how fascinating it is to, to, to work there. So when I used to run that investment accelerator for tech startups in China, we had this, this methodology or this, this ethos at the fund of wanting to always dive deep into sectors. We wanted to be very, very big on, on synthetic biology or hardware. And then people would question what we were doing at China Accelerator. And I would say, well, China as a geography is our sector because it's changing so fast. It was so unique and so poorly understood. Um, that was what made it so fascinating as far as where we could take companies to grow. Um, and that's what we were doing. And you're right. It has changed so much. I think it's a, some people get into fascinating fields. We're just in fascinating geographies, which is just as exciting, right? Now, you mentioned that you just got back from a trip to Shanghai. You were there for the CIIE and FHC. Tell us about your impressions of the city post-COVID. Yeah. Um, well, so this was my first visit back almost to the day uh, in four years. So having been to China pretty much every year since I was 19, um, it was a, it was a, probably the longest gap that I'd had uh, in not going back. So it was really good to be back, um, not least to meet up with colleagues and clients, um, but just to see how China – um, oh, and I should say, I just I only stayed in Shanghai on this visit because we had a really hectic program for ten days. Um, but how China's continued to evolve despite being closed um, during the pandemic. For those for those Joan Lee listening, she just air quoted that. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> um, and um, you know, they they say that innovation is born out of adversity, don't they? So anyone who knows China will know exactly that China has continue to innovate during that period. It certainly hasn't stood still and China has not been closed. We might not have been able to go, but boy, has it carried on evolving. And um, and it's really accelerated, I think, some of the areas that some of our clients and our businesses are involved in. Um, you know, what did I think of Shanghai? I've always loved the city. I guess it's kind of, you know, my home in China. Um, but I, I really feel now it, it's truly a modern, future-facing city. You know, electric cars are everywhere. Um, it's got a really sophisticated retail scene. We were obviously there with a group of food and drink companies, so that was my real focus. Um, but, you know, that's supported by advanced e-commerce. 
you know, fantastic infrastructure and ever curious consumers. I mean, you know, the city's, well, it's, it's very, it sort of struck me that it was very quiet and I realised it's because all the cars are electric vehicles um, or mopeds delivering e-commerce parcels. And I happened to coincide with, um, you know, 11.11 singles day. So there were a lot of them around. That infrastructure of logistics is, I, I touch on it here and there. Regular listeners will know how much I I just am such a fan of the logistics there and uh, both, you know, within the city and from city to city. Uh, it's it's absolutely fabulous. Uh, you're right. I mean, there's just the mopeds are zooming all over the place. Uh, and it's just it's just fun to watch. You just feel like it's Black Friday every day. It's super cool. Now, specifically, though, what was Britain's presence like at the CIIE and FHC and why? given that I think you're probably going to say it was a strong presence. Why is participating in these events so important for the CBBC and British businesses? I think the two trade fairs that we're talking about, so China International Import-Export Fair, CIIE, and Food and Hospitality China, um, are two very different shows. So for me, um, I think this was the first time that the British uh, had taken a stand at the FHC show for a number of years, for obvious reasons. Um, it was a slightly smaller group exhibiting than in the past, but I think that's just companies, uh, some companies are just waiting to see, but there were other companies. So there were quite a few companies who were very keen to get out there and have meetings with existing distributors, existing clients, but also to understand how that market has evolved, um, how the consumer base has evolved. Um but there were also, in the groups that I was involved in, there were a number of companies that were new to market and really wanting to go and touch and feel and see and smell and, and see things, you know, at, at first hand. Um, and we, d- we delivered a range of programs for them. We did site visits, we did tour visits, introducing them to buyers, et cetera. Um, and I think it's a really great platform for companies to look to enter the market and see what other markets are doing, what other countries are doing, the presence of other countries as well. And it was great that, you know, we actually had a, a government delegation there as well because we haven't had a few of those in a few years either. Um, CIIE, I didn't have a lot of time to, to spend there, but I went for about half a day. And I think for me, that tends to be for companies who are more established already in the market, um, often, you know, showcasing their latest products. Um, but I, I did see some really big, impressive stands from some of our premium members, some of the big drinks brands like Diageo, some of the car manufacturers like Jaguar Land Rover, um, you know, really impressive stands alongside many of their international and increasingly domestic competitors. Let me ask you, you you talked about that itinerary of various things. If you're taking a new brand, new eyes, new company, taking them to China, maybe for the first time or second time, maybe something like that. What mix of, of kind of itinerary items based on like culture, sightseeing, factory visits, going to expos, how do you, how do you mix that up to give them the broad and correct impression and get them as integrated or immersed into China as possible? So I think, you know, key key for us is really to spend quite a lot of time with the companies before they leave to understand what their expectations are of the market 
whether they've got any experience in China already by accident, or maybe they've been approached by a distributor who says, we like your stuff, we'd like to import it, you know, and help them understand whether that's the right, that that isn't the only person they should talk to. They should use the opportunity to talk to a range of people and build a picture up, because I'm sure you know, Todd, from your time in China, the, the more people you talk to, um, the better better balance of a picture you can you can build um and you and you develop your skills for talking to people in new cultures as you have more conversations um and um so so understanding what the client wants is is key and then generally we would so you know day one a briefing introduction um i think we worked with some some companies that you know as well on our briefing for for the companies that were there talking about the market the local market for shanghai which is where we are where we were for that visit rather um and then we took them out on um, a number of store visits so food retailers who are the big food retailers some that work only with distributors some that have got big networks that buy direct um in the past we've taken them to see some of the e-commerce platforms um so so a mix of routes into market for them to get a feel some of the companies that we had can't actually sell um direct to china yet because of the um licensing rules so they've got to sell through um cross-border e-commerce so helping to understand what what options are open for them and then um on this visit we spent a day at the trade fair obviously those who were exhibiting were there for the duration but those who weren't exhibiting we sort of gave them a base on the UK stand and then they could go off and look at, you know, confectionery section or dairy section and, and just look at what their competitors are doing and do their own market research. Um, and then we had um, a day where we did a bit like a speed dating, meet the buyer type thing. So we identified some buyers who were interested in having a conversation. So there was a mix really. And then the re- rest of the time we left for them to plan themselves or they could either commission more services if they wanted to. And if they wanted to go to other cities, then we've got a network of offices across China. So we were able to facilitate that. But Shanghai's a big enough big enough place to start. <laughs> oh, yeah. You could spend months there for sure. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So you mentioned many offices. Probably a good time maybe to have you explain what the CBBC is. I know that a lot of our listeners are starting to get very familiar with you know, what chambers and, and business councils are about, what is yours doing, what is yours about, and maybe paint a picture of the membership and tell yeah. us about the important work that you're doing. Our tagline, what do we say? We're the UK's national business network promoting trade and investment with China, that in, in a nutshell. Um, but we've been, actually been active since 1954. Um, and since then, we've acted as in the independent voice of business. Um located at the heart of everything that goes on with China, uh, engaging across both countries in, mo- in the majority of sectors and most regions. Um, so we support, we have a membership base, about 500 companies, and they range from some of the UK's leading, you know, FTSE, company, FTSE 100 companies to some quite small innovative tech companies um, and some other sort of mid-large manufacturing companies across a range of sectors. Um, so I think we feel we're uniquely positioned in the UK and in China to represent and serve our members' interests. Um, and we've played, we've played an important role during the course of that almost 70 years now in helping to shape bilateral relations between the UK and China, 
because we've got close links with the UK government and devolved administrations here. We work closely with Scotland, Northern Ireland and Wales as well, and the Chinese government at national, provincial and municipal level. And we have really strong relationships with the British embassies and consulates out in China, as well as the Chinese embassy here in the UK and um, the consulates across the UK as well. So we deliver a range of services. We run events, information, briefings, you know, trade trade issues, etc. Being that conduit, really, for 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 Absolutely. understanding and growth and and trade, yeah, yeah. What yeah. what sectors are really doing well for UK companies uh, in China, and and where is there potentially room for growth? And then you know, let's be honest and touch a little bit on where some of the challenges are for some of the UK companies that are operating in China. Yeah. So, so forgive me. There, there's a lot. So I've made a few notes, Todd. So if I'm Excellent. glancing down, forgive Thank me. You. I don't want to uh, misappropriate anything. So, I mean, we've talked about China being so, so huge. There's pretty much scope for most areas with the right approach. Um, I think we, we've just been looking at some new um, HM revenue and customs data from the UK government. So things that have been doing pretty well recently, jewellery, cosmetics, clothing, I think footwear grew 18% in the four quarters before um, Q2 this year. Um, food products, beverages. Um, and I, th- I think we just see there's room for growth in every category. We had, a sm- we had a company in Yorkshire not so long ago we were talking to, they were selling jukeboxes, you know, the traditional jukeboxes that you see in diners. Yeah, with the vinyl records yeah. inside and you punch the buttons to choose which, which record and which song. Yeah, China's become the, I think, their biggest export market. So who, who awesome. knew? Which sectors is that sitting? So, you know, it's those kind of little stories that, that counterbalance the, the big stories that, that make the news. Um, I, you know, I've got a bit more on consumer markets brands, but we might go into those in a minute. But um, I think the challenges, I think just that nervousness, it's a long way away, the cultural differences. We spend a lot of time, we have a whole course on cultural differences and looking at how that impacts how business is done in China. Um, and I think just the fact that China does need a wholly different approach to other markets. You can't just copy and paste your strategy from Europe or the States or North America into your China strategy. Um, and it does need a lot of work and investment if you're looking to build brand recognition. Um, so you just need to think carefully about what your strategy is. Um I think so. And, and that can be daunting for companies, particularly probably in the in the current global economic climate with raised energy prices. And there's a lot of factors that I think are influencing companies' decisions about particularly investing in long haul markets at the moment. Where do you see a lot of potential for growth um, specific to, you know, the sectors that the UK is really strong in have really great exports or really good global growth and do you think that have a real opportunity over the, the coming years, say between now and 2025, 2026, uh, to really grow maybe more than some of the others? So I asked our business analyst uh, what his perspective was on this, and he said pretty much every category. I think just because <laughs> – because, because and that, that sounds a bit flippant. It's not a political I, show, you know. No. <laughs> no, I know. I mean, you know, you would think renewables with, with global war, you know, that that move there but china's making great steps forward in that itself so i think we need to engage because we all need to be on that on that journey um but um so i mean my special my sort of area of focus as i said over the last 10 or so years has really been in the food and drink sector um 
we are seeing growth. I think the biggest um, the biggest areas from the UK perspective are, are pork, um, seafood, and whiskey, basically. Um, you know, everyone knows a good jam of whiskey, but um, but you know, with some of those sectors, they bring their own challenges because they need you need to negotiate market access for meat plants. Um, there's obviously phytosanitary conditions, and and once you've got the access, the next challenge is actually keeping it. You know, COVID threw up a whole challenge around that with you know, talk about you know coal 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 food chain and you know whether the virus was you know. Uh, going to pass through that, and so we've we've been working with a number of companies who who sort of caught up in that in that that difficult area, and and that's part of the area that we can help. We can help them to lobby the different government bodies and work with the British government to to work on that. Well, the food and drink, I mean, that's an area that we have seen a really significant growth in tastes and preferences, haven't we? I mean, it's Absolutely. I remember now you you have a much longer tenure in China than I do. And you'll remember that there was, I don't know how to say it, there wasn't that many options for what you were going to eat and drink. Um, I also visited Shanghai in the late, um, in the late eighties on a trip. I spent less than a week there, but it seemed like every restaurant and every meal was pretty much, you are going to be met with the same thing, just variations of. And they have really expanded their palates on both food and drink. And the explosion of, I mean, Subway, Subway sandwiches has been one of the most wildly successful fast food chains that um, now because you can stand and see the ingredients and then choose which ones are going like that met a cultural comfort level for Chinese. They, they, they felt comfortable being able to see versus something that was happening in the back behind closed doors. Uh, And I know that that played a big part in it, but basically they were really wanting to go out and explore everything. It wasn't just by Joe and T, you know, they were expanding into wine and whiskeys. And so I completely agree. I think, I think in that area, and they're incredibly inquisitive and curious and really willing to try. So there is a ton of room uh, to grow in that area. And I'll let you comment on that. Yeah, but I, but I think also now, now and over the last you know decade, say, you know, with it, with the increase in use of, you know, mobile phones, um, social media, WeChat, everybody wants to talk about this more experiential side of their life you know it's it's not a case of we're, we're eating because we need to eat to to function it's about that whole experience i mean you know the amount of i've got a, a friend from from the u.s who's importing he was the first person to import mescal into china and he, he works with a lot of the cocktail bars and you know running themed nights there and some amazing restaurants and you know no shortage you know ran out of nights to to visit all the places we wanted to go to um but I think it's part of that whole, you know, Gen Z, millennial, wanting to explore, wanting to be, you know, learn and, and do new things. And also, you know, lots more Chinese students studying overseas, wanting to, you know, have that some of that same experience back at back when they get home, I guess, as well. One of the things I loved about Shanghai and differentiate that between a New York or a London is that you had this this ceiling 
was as high as any of those other cities. There was a Michelin chef on every corner. But you know what else was on every corner? A little street vendor who <laughs> where you could get for one kwai, you know, a skewer of something. And, you know, so the floor was also super low. Um, you could live extremely cheap. I mean, if you were to go to New York as a startup, say, if from my world, you're looking at, you know, how, how are you going to exist for less than $3,000 a month, right? I don't know if you could live in London for less than 3,000 quid a month. Like it just, it's almost not possible. In China, you could live for months on that kind of money if you wanted to, if you had to. Uh, it is possible. You can get around cheap. You can eat for cheap, right? Uh, yeah, you might be eating a lot of ramen and noodles, but you can do it, whereas other places you can't. But they still taste great <laughs> most of the time. And the sea, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, maybe not after a couple of months every day, but oh. the ceiling was also just a side. You could get as fancy as and as expensive yeah. as, as you wanted to in any other city as well, because yeah. the luxury was there. Okay, as you alluded to, we are going to move on and talk about consumer brands uh, specifically. What are some of the most popular UK brands in China? Again, which sectors in that area are doing well? And why does the UK brand across sectors resonate with Chinese consumers in your opinion? Okay. So, I mean, two across, questions there. Yeah. Two questions. Uh, hopefully I've got two answers. So I think across that, the, the sort of the consumer space, they obviously got yeah. lots of multiple sectors. So sub-sectors. Yeah. So um, generally in terms of the sectors where we're seeing growth, it's been around health and wellness, beauty and personal care, fashion, sports and leisure increasingly, and home and lifestyle. And I think those were trends that we were seeing, you know, four years ago, but they've really been accelerated trends since, you know, with the lockdowns and things, lots of new innovative products I've seen in the, in the personal sort of exercise space. Um, I could, I won't list them now. We haven't got time, but I think, I think in, in health and wellness, particularly is quite an interesting area because I think it's got a really big consumer base that is different in China from most other Western countries, certainly in the UK, um, the consumer base is very young compared to other parts of the world. I think, you know, the Gen Zs, the millennials, as well as the, you know, what the Chinese call the silver economy are all purchasing across that category. So some of our main clients from the UK are Holland and Barrett, um, Vitabiotics, um, seeing huge growth in China. On the beauty side, we've got um, Estee Lauder, um, Creed, Miller Harris, Argentum, um, Emma Hardy. So it's a market where the big established brands are doing well, and particularly those with really strong brand stories. Um, and in fashion, you've got stories, you know, brands like Burberry. You've got Ted Baker. Um, you know, on the home and home and lifestyle front, we're working with um, some of the potteries like Denby, Emma Bridgewater, some of the homeware goods like Vicepring, who, who do luxury mattresses. Um, and then you've got, um, you know, other, uh, we touched before on, you know, Jaguar Land Rover, Aston Martin, but also in the bike sector, Brompton Bikes, um, you know, another great guest for your show, but, um, they're, they've got a great story and they you know, I saw Brompton Bikes in, in quite a number of stores in China, uh, also in sort of the camping stores, this out, the, you know, the interest in outdoor you know, I, I guess it's glamping, glamping in China. Um, but, the, you know, just lots of different stops, shops and different stores. Um, I saw a Brompton bike shop that 
even got a bar in the middle of it. But, um, you know, there's a lot of fusion in China as well in all of these areas. Um, and do you want me to talk a little bit more, more about food? And I'll just talk a little bit about some of the food and drink brands. So I've talked a bit about meat, whiskey and seafood. Um, but we're still selling tea to China um, from the UK. So we're working with, you know, brands like Tailors of Harrogate, Twinings, Wittards, Wittards of Chelsea. Um, why do they resonate with the Chinese consumer? I think quality is a is high on the list. Authenticity. You know, if you've, if you've got money to afford imported goods, you can buy pretty much anything. But what's higher value is actually the authenticity authenticity and the history and British brands are really strong in that you know and we've got lots of brands who love to tell the story behind their item of clothing or their car model so that then the consumer feels that they're part of something bigger than just themselves it brings it back into that experience I think UK culture is quite popular as I've said we've got lots of um, Chinese students studying in the UK so they've experienced the UK Aesthetics, maybe some of the soft power things like the crown, you know, the royal family, Sherlock Holmes, um, Harry Potter, David Beckham, the Premier League. Um, and we are seeing, you know, in that food space, a lot of attention being paid to some of the royal warrant holder brands like um, Tiptree. So Wilkin and Sons, they make um, a particular strawberry jam, which was James Bond's favourite jam. That's not why they're selling in China, but it's just more of the story that they can tell and it personalizes it. And I think that provenance, the craftsmanship, the heritage and the history is a real plus that our brands can bring. Are martinis popular just because of James Bond? No, I don't think so. I don't think so. I do not like them at all. Do not. I had a great (laughs) ginger ginger martini in Sichuan Citizen in Shanghai. I recommend it. Next time you can't do vermouth. That's, That's the thing. I just can't. It's it does it does not agree with me. Todd, you're I've missing out times. on a whole. I am remarkably uncultured. Okay, oh for those of you listening, um, <laughs> I'm sure not. <laughs> I can't. And I can't. Guinness. It's another one. I'm so sorry. I can't do it. Don't apologize. Yeah. It's fine. I just. I do. I feel like I have to apologize. No, you know your limits. Myself That's the key and thing. everybody. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it's it's. It, it is interesting. Um, and one of the other things, so this is a little bit off topic, but so two things that I really noticed a lot when I was in China that were surprising to me. Uh, one was how many overseas returned Chinese came from the UK. Um, it seemed almost more than America, which I did not expect. And, and then there is two brands of types of types of English. Um, and then like the education system, the baccalaureate, if I'm not even probably saying that right, because it sounds French. Um, it is French. <laughs> yeah. But it seems to be the UK standard of, of English. It's the curriculum of learning English, I would say, maybe. I, I'm probably not describing that properly at all. And I apologize. To all <laughs> not in my experience, but then I'm old. <laughs> yeah. Um, so these were, were fascinating. As I got introduced to a lot of English language training platforms and startups and then the schools. And, you know, lo and behold... Most of them were studying uh, a British English versus an American English. That has been such a huge presence there as well. Um, why? I mean, it's it's. Are are you helping universities? Yeah, to in expand fa- their brand in in China as well because they seem to want to all go to university in the UK. 
Yeah, absolutely, we are. We have over 50 of our members are leading UK universities. Um, right. So, yeah, and a range of the universities. Some of them are the the Red Brick, the Russell Group universities, and some of them are the more modern universities that focus more on sort of um, vocational course courses and education. Um, but yeah, I think there are there are more Chinese students studying in the UK than than in the US, and I think the applications yeah. are, are still rising. Obviously, we can't rest on our laurels and assume that's always going to be the case. But I think they recognise that you know the quality of the education. Obviously, Oxford and Cambridge are famous. That's not saying that other universities in this in in the US or anywhere else aren't, aren't equally as as famous. But um, but yeah, we, our, our education system is well respected. It's the prestige. Yeah. And that leads me to think a little bit more even about the storytelling. And yeah. when you're working with companies and maybe you're doing kind of those those meetings before you go to educate and get them ready and get them set, understanding yeah. that going into a market like China, you won't be able to naturally lean on the history of Aston Martin or Land Rover, what have you, um, you know, it just doesn't exist, right? They they weren't hearing that name and being subjected to the marketing their entire life and just kind of downloading through osmosis of just living in that area. This is all fresh. So it's, it, it does highlight the importance of storytelling when you go in because they don't naturally carry an idea or a feeling of prestige about the brands. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's it's really important. And I think those brands that do have that story to tell, it shows when they're talking about their product because it, it comes through with a passion. And, and I think that then builds that trust and that affinity. And if they know that they're, you know, as I was talking about, the, you know, the, I don't know if your viewers will know what the Royal Warrant holders are, but they're basically brands that are in, supported or in, endorsed. I don't know if endorsed the correct word, but by the Royal Family. So, you know, if you go to Harrods, it'll ha- it's got a Royal Warrant crest on it. Um, and so some of the they're, they're the brands that are used by the by the royal family. So um, for those, so again, there's there's that story, and I guess you know, it just adds it adds to the story that the Chinese can then tell themselves, can't they? So what is in reverse the sentiment of the British business community towards China, including the business leaders in China and in the UK? I think we're still seeing strong interest in China, which is good for us because we're China specialists. Um, and we're seeing many companies keen to get back out to the market, keen to engage if they're already doing business in China. And we have seen increased activity. That's obviously been helped by the reinstatement of some of the flights. We're still not at full capacity yet, but I'm sure they're, you know, they will be adding to their routings, um, seeing stories about that all the time. Um uh, you know, I touched earlier on, I've, I know that a lot of companies are facing broader challenges, you know, cost of production, um, just through changes in the global economy, you know, the, the cost of energy, um, supply chains um, can be challenging. Um, and that may mean that companies are not quite in a position to sort of jump on a plane and say, yes, let's go to China now. And perhaps because they haven't they haven't been able to get on a plane and go to China. This is my a personal view they've kind of not really been thinking about China. They've sort of put it on a, parked it for a while and, and looked at other markets where they could grow. I mean, you know, businesses need to grow, don't they? So, so I feel there's, I feel there's a little bit, um, a little bit, bit more work that we need to do to keep telling the story about what's going on, where the opportunities are and that China's still around, China's still here. Um, and, you know, 
for some companies, it's really critical. I mean, I think, you know, China's now, I think if you combine China and Hong Kong together, it's our third largest trading partner uh, for the UK. And I think China, you know, in terms of exports, it's now our second largest market. If I were to say, and I think you'd agree, and we've started to mention this on the show, because we talked to the head of the Australian Chamber, um, you know, and she, she was saying the same thing, that... Some people are still some some business decision makers are still hesitant towards China. They're not sure. They're still there's a there's a COVID hangover, and we're extremely bullish on China. And if you want to be successful there, now is the time to invest. Now is the time to get out in front of your competition while others are waffling and scratching their head and taking time to want to try to get it right. Fortune favors the bold. And now would be a great time to really start and get, get on the ahead plane. and show that. Yeah. And go right. Would you, would you believe in that statement? Yeah, ab- absolutely. And I think we've been, um, you know, trying to, you know, I know, I know we don't want to get into politics and, God forbid. Um, we don't want to, but they do impact relations with China, as you as you know, they can impact relations. And, you know, we have seen, um, you know, a less than speedy response to getting out and re- reactivating some of the some of the um, regular dialogues that used that used to happen. And that's, you know, often timing, you know, it's it's often timing. So but we're 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 keen to support whatever we can in terms of getting those trade trade dialogues off the ground. We've we've seen um, you know other senior representatives from other nations meeting up with their Chinese counterparts um, even last week. So you know we're keen for to see that here because it does it does support and it sends a message that you know the UK's there as a, a partner. And in fact, there was a minister out at FHC and she talked about being there as being important to show that we're a serious long-term partner um, and our businesses are there to be serious and, and are committed as well. And and that's what you need for, we need for China. So, um, but sometimes that's a fine tightrope to, to walk. You mentioned that you didn't want to get political. So let's get political. <laughs> Your work at home with the local government in the UK, what are the messages and what are you trying to deliver, potentially lobby for, or just educate in London to government stakeholders across the UK regarding the trade relationship with China? Um, well, interesting that you said in London, um, because we have we've been doing quite a bit of work over the last few years looking at how many jobs are dependent on a China relationship. Um, across the UK. I apologize for that, by the way. I think it's the fallacy of of being uh, North American is that we believe London is like the epicenter where all decisions are made for all of the UK. So I apologize for that. Well, kind of, kind of. But, you know, we have members of parliament <laughs> who have constituencies across the UK. And actually I know, some, of course you do. Some of, some of them have significant business interests within their constituencies that perhaps they've not always been fully aware of. And I think, you know, sometimes in the UK, you'll hear talk about the Westminster bubble. But we've been doing lots of um, roundtables and working with people to try and bring the balance to the to the dialogue and say that, you know, some of these companies, you know, 
X number of employees are because they've got 50% of their exports going to China. You know, if those exports disappear because of, you know, a fallout or, or whatever, um, you know, it just brings a, a sense of realism, I guess. But, you know, we, you know, China's important and we've got to keep engaging with China and talking, even about, you know, the challenging things. You know, we're not going to agree. Nobody ever, you know, as individuals, we're not going to agree on diff- on things. But if you stop talking, then you don't resolve anything, do you? Claire Uri, Chief Commercial Officer at China Britain Business Council. Thank you very, very much for coming on the show. We really appreciated your time today. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Todd. As usual, for everybody listening to us audio only, don't forget to go over and check out our YouTube for YouTube shorts over there. And for everybody who wants to hear wherever we are audio only, please feel free to go check us out on all your favorite podcast platforms, whether it's Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, you name it. But from all of us here at The Negotiation and for Claire and the CBBC, thank you very much for listening and we'll see you next time. Growing a company is hard. Doing it in a foreign market? Exponentially so. The best piece of advice I can give you is not to do it alone. When you start looking at the Asia-Pacific region for further expansion possibilities, and I sincerely hope you do, make sure you choose the right partners to do it with. My good friends at WPIC Marketing and Technologies have almost 20 years of experience helping brands, just like yours, enter China, Japan, and Southeast Asia. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Negotiation, and if you're interested in being a guest or want to connect with me or any of our team, please reach out to us at podcast at WPIC.co, and be sure to rate, comment, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.